0: Our scripture reading today is coming from the book of Luke, chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. If you don't have a Bible with you currently and need one, if you would raise your hand, Alan can bring one to you um, at your seat. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to grab one on the way out and take it home with you. We would love to give that to you as a gift from our church um, and from our church family. Um, our passage is found on page 718 of our church bibles in the back and again it's luke chapter 20 starting in verse verse 20 it says this keeping a close watch on him they sent spies who pretended to be sincere and they hoped to catch jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor so the spies questioned him teacher we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of god in accordance with the truth is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through the duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said in their public, and it was astonished by his answer, and so they became silent. The word of the Lord.
1: All right. So my sermon title tonight um, is Where Jesus Stands Politically. Because I thought to myself, what would go really good with a baby dedication? A sermon on politics, right? No, I actually chose this passage like a month uh, ago or even longer. And uh, this kind of just ended up being what is tonight. So we're going to see what happens. We're going to see what we learn. Um, but I have preached on kind of the connection between faith and politics before. Uh, there's a series called No Fear November. If you want to look that up, you can find that on the website. Uh, but since it is a, tr- a sermon on politics and the Bible, and politics can be a little touchy, I'm going to say a prayer uh, for myself, for all of us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and that your word does speak to issues that are current today. Uh, and just give us greater understanding, give all of us humility and a teachable spirit, and give me uh, humility and a teachable spirit, and would we just listen to you and listen to your word this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for better or worse, politics is often associated with Christianity, with Jesus, and with the Bible. So I want you to kind of think in your own mind, this is just a personal exercise, think in your own mind of those things that we associate with Jesus or the Bible or Christians politically. So think of those issues that, that pop into your mind. Some of these are really controversial issues, aren't they? We think about abortion or gay marriage, maybe some other issues like The death penalty or feeding the poor pop into your mind. Maybe you think of Jesus and and refugees and immigration. All of these can be really kind of inflammatory issues, can't they? Now, maybe you're someone who, like, none of these issues pop into your mind. You have a clean slate, you don't associate Jesus with politics. You don't associate Christians or the Bible with politics. That's, that's great. Well, then we'll have kind of a, a clean slate for tonight. But I think for many of us, there are issues that pop into our mind when we think of Christianity and politics. Now, if you could go back in time 2,000 years ago and you could talk to Jesus and you could ask him one political question, what would it be? you could ask him one question dealing with politics, what would it be? Would it be something like, Jesus, should we build a wall? Would it be, what should we do to get out of the deficit? Maybe you would ask about the military. What should we do with our military? Should we have a military? What about the death penalty? Should we have a death penalty? Maybe what should we do about pollution and global warming? What would you ask him? I think if we're honest with ourselves, like I would want to ask a question about the kind of the current issues of today. I would want to know. What would my motive be if I asked Jesus that question? Like, why would I want to ask him that question? Is it so that I could? Can I go to those around me and say, well, <laughs> I know the truth. <laughs> I know what Jesus said. Like Jesus literally told me that, uh, you know, this, this, and this about politics. I mean, that would be like a conversation stopper anytime you get in an argument about politics. Or would you come to Jesus and say, you know, honestly, I want to know, Jesus, what you have to say about this issue so that I can obey you in this part of my life. Like, I, I believe it's my call as a Christian to lay down every part of my life before you, and I want to obey you in all things, even my politics. Well, today's story, some people got to ask Jesus a political question. They got to ask him a question about politics. They don't necessarily have a, a good motive, as, as we see, as we'll read, but I want to go ahead and read through Verses 20 through 22 again. So you can look down at your Bible, or if you have a a phone, a smartphone, you can pull up it there. Verse 20 says, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they ask a question about taxes. And it's a good thing that taxes are no longer a controversial political issue, right? This is a trap. They're not approaching Jesus with good motives. It is a trap. They, they want, like, you can, you can hear Admiral Akbar in the, in the background just yelling, it's a trap! <laughs> That's a Star Wars reference. If you haven't seen Star Wars, I'm sorry. It's a trap. They're trying to entrap Jesus in their political camp. Come to one camp or the other, Jesus. And we never do this, right? Like 2,000 years later, we never try to say, oh, Jesus is in my political camp. Do we? I think we do. Jesus is on my side. I know where Jesus is standing. He's standing right next to me and my candidate and the people that I want to be in office. Well, maybe Jesus is standing near you, but maybe he's standing somewhere entirely different. I think this passage is a call to examine ourselves when we think Jesus is on our side politically. So when you think you know where Jesus stands politically, dot, 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 how should we respond? What can we do to examine our lives? I'm going to go through three things that we can do to kind of assess our own hearts and assess our lives to make sure that we're standing with Jesus instead of trying to force him to stand with us. But this issue of taxation, we're gonna kind of step back into the ancient world for a moment. This issue of taxation was very inflammatory for two reasons. First, Rome was an enemy state. So Rome has levied this taxation on the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, against their will. I don't know, most people don't sign up for taxes, you know, willingly. They really aren't in a position where they can say, no, we're not going to pay this tax. In fact, a few years earlier, this is the second reason, in A.D. 6-10, a man named Judas, now not the Judas that betrays Jesus, a different Judas, he led a revolt against Rome. And he called anyone who pays taxes to Rome, to this enemy occupying force, a coward. and said, you must trust God instead of trusting in Rome. So this is an explosive political issue in their day. And so as we read the story, what are some lessons that we can draw out to kind of assess ourselves today? And assess them as well. And the first one is to test your motives. See, if you think Jesus is standing with you, first thing you can do is test your motives. And I'm drawing this point from verses 20 through 22. Now, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and, like, the chief priests. So these are kind of the big religious powers of Jesus's day. All right? People that are in charge of the temple, uh, people that are in charge of, like, interpreting the law. They send spies to Jesus. And they want to catch Jesus in a trap They send these spies who pretend to be sincere and you can see them like trying to butter Jesus up. Jesus, you're such a great teacher. (laughs) Jesus, you're just fantastic. And Jesus sees right through them. This word for pretend is a Greek word and it's a Greek word called hippocrinomai, hippocrinomai. It's where we get the word hypocrite. Hypocrite is actually like an acting term Where you're one thing, but you try to act a different way. Jesus is saying they're hypocrites. The Bible is saying these people are hypocrites because they're pretending to be invested in Jesus and his opinions, and yet they want to move Jesus to one side or the other because they want to entrap Jesus. And Jesus sees this in verse 23. He says he saw through their duplicity. Now, duplicity is not a word that I normally use in my vocabulary, but it means craftiness. You saw through their craftiness, their deceit. See, they're trying to twist Jesus to agree with them, to line up with their opinions, and that's duplicity. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not pointing at our congregation and saying, man, all of you, every single one of us, we approach Jesus with craftiness. My goal here today is not to condemn at all, but to help us examine ourselves, to examine our own hearts, to examine my heart, to encourage each of you to examine your hearts. How do we approach Jesus? Why are we asking? I know sometimes when I get into kind of a I don't know, a political argument. I mean, I'm sure none of you have ever been in a political argument. I'll go to the Bible and I'll say, ah, like how can I figure out how to prove my point? Jesus doesn't want us to do that. That's not the right way to approach the Bible. See, we want to approach Jesus and the answers that he has to offer with humility. I think there's a way that people could have asked this same exact question, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar without evil motives? You could ask the same question. This is a, this is a genuine, genuinely interesting question, one that I'm sure a lot of people wrestled with. And so I want to tell you that it is safe to come to Jesus with your political questions. You can go to the Bible. You can come and even talk to me or some of the other leaders here at the church. But it's safe to go to, to go to Jesus with your political questions if you're going to him in a spirit of humility, genuinely wanting to know what Jesus has to say instead of trying to find the Jesus that, that you want, that's put in your box. I want us to think for a moment about Jesus' audience, those people that he is speaking to in this moment. There's a couple different groups that Jesus is speaking to. One that wants Jesus to answer the question one way and the others that want him to answer the question the exact opposite way. And so the first group is the Herodians and potentially Matthew. Now the Herodians are pro-government and pro-taxes and I think Matthew too. Now, How do I know that the Herodians are asking Jesus this question? Well, if you go to Mark's gospel, it says the Pharisees and the Herodians came to ask Jesus a question. Now, we don't have Herodians in our culture today. The Herodians, they they were kind of like in the political party of Herod. So they're like, Herod is the man. We're going to follow him. He's the ruler of Galilee. If we align ourselves with him and go by his playbook, We're going to do great. We're going to get ahead financially in advance. And so they could have had selfish reasons for wanting Jesus to get ahead, wanting Herod to get ahead, wanting Jesus to answer kind of in favor of Herod. Yes, you should pay your taxes. But before we condemn them, I also want to talk about Matthew. See, Matthew is one of the 12 disciples. Matthew... You may remember his profession. He was a tax collector. So that means he was probably somewhat in favor of the government. He was willing to work for them, to dedicate much of his life to serving them. And so I think it's fair to say that the Herodians and Matthew, maybe they saw some of the good in the Roman government. If we think back to this time period, there's this, there's this amazing stretch of peace that Rome brings. It's called the Pax Romana. 200 years of peace, prosperity, stability, and economic gain. And so people like the Herodians and Matthew, well, it made sense to be pro-Rome because they're bringing stability to Judea, a region that is historically not stable. And, well, Rome also did some other great things. Rome built 250,000 miles of roads. Did you know that? Rome built 250,000 miles of roads and 50,000 miles of that are actually paved, paved roads with uh, bricks laid on them. So this increases trade, this increases wealth. You can see why the Herodians and Matthew are pro-government and pro-taxes and they want Jesus to say, pay your taxes to Caesar because to them it makes sense. It lines up with their worldview. Now, what about the other side of the aisle? We also have the Pharisees and another disciple named Simon. They're likely anti-government and pro-freedom. Now, the Pharisees, they're kind of like the religious uh, traditionalists. <laughs> they are wanting everyone to follow the Old Testament holiness laws. So they they, they like want strict observance of, of the Bible They want Israel to be free. They do not want Rome to rule uh, the the nation state of Israel. And one of Jesus' disciples was called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots are that same group of people that were led by Judas a couple years earlier who led a revolt against Rome because they didn't want to pay taxes, So you can imagine that Simon is probably not pro-taxation. And I think they probably have some reasonable arguments as well. I found this quote to kind of explain the zealots. The zealots were the extreme wing of the Pharisees. In contrast with the Pharisees, they believed only God had the right to rule over the Jews. They were willing to fight and die for that belief. For them, nationalistic patriotism and religion were inseparable. And I think there's probably some good arguments on their side. I mean, Rome is taking this money from the people of Judea. They're funding their military. They're funding their soldiers who are then crucifying Jewish people. That's not right. That's wrong. Thousands of Jewish people were crucified during Rome's time and authority. And you can see how they could take this money, this denarius. A denarius is a day's wages, so it's a significant amount. They could take this money and they could spend it to feed the poor and the widows. And instead, they're having to give it to Rome. Fight back. Fight against the power. And so we have the Herodians and Matthew. We have the Pharisees and Simon. Now I want to take a moment and I want to transport us from way back then to today. And it's a good thing that, like, in America, we just have, like, one political party, and we're always in agreement. We never disagree about anything. Now, we have two political parties, right? And I think this is a very basic, perhaps, oversimplification. But I think you can look at these two groups and say, hmm, one lines up a little bit more with one group today, So like the Herodians and Matthew, perhaps they would be Democrats or liberal. And then we have the Pharisees and Simon. They sound a little bit more conservative or Republican. Maybe even as I was describing one of those groups, you were like, ah, sign me up, I would be with them. And yet both of these groups, they're interested in eliminating Jesus. Because when they encounter the true Jesus, the real Jesus, he doesn't fit in with either of their worldviews. He doesn't fit in with the perspectives that, that they hold most dear. And so they are willing to put him to death, both of these groups. And I think when we encounter Jesus today in our political system, I don't think we encounter him in either one of those groups either. Jesus is not a registered Democrat. He is not a registered Republican. LifeWay just released a new study. So maybe some of you guys like statistics and studies. They did a study on churchgoers and politics. They found this. They found that 46% of Christians of Protestant churchgoers prefer to attend a church where people share their political views. 46% say I want to go to a church where people agree with me politically. But a, a whopping 42% actually say I would, I would rather go to a church where there's some diversity of opinion. Now this, this result right here is people under the age of 50. Now in my mind, the first thing I thought was, oh, you know, it's because, you know, oh, my generation, we're so open minded and, you know, we're millennials and we want to hear what other people have to say. But actually, if you go over 50, it gets larger and larger the percentage of people that want to attend a church where others don't share their political opinion. So it's actually the previous generation that is more interested in going to a church where there's diversity of opinion. Forty-six percent of people agree. The executive director of Lifeway uh, drew this conclusion. He said, politics doesn't seem to be a high priority for most Protestants when choosing a church to attend. But for a small group of churchgoers, it's really crucial. Here's another question. My political views match those of most people at my church. Fifty-one percent agree. So half says, yeah, people agree with me. But 49% are either not sure or disagree. No, like not, people don't agree with me, or I, I simply don't know if people agree with my political opinions. Now, apparently they did a previous study that found only 1 in 10 would consider leaving their church over political views. So I hope that 1 out of 10 does not leave the church after tonight. But I share these statistics with you to show there's a great deal of diversity. There's a great deal of expectation in the church around the issue of politics. Why is that? Well, let's check our hearts. Let's examine our own motives. Why do we, why do we want the church to be a place that lines up with our political opinions? So when you think you know where Jesus stands politically, first test your motives. And that leads me to our second point in verses 23 through 24. My second point is this, look for idolatry. So test your motives and then look for idolatry in yourself. Now, idolatry is not a word that we just casually throw out in conversation, uh, you know, with our friends or or when we're out and about. So what does idolatry mean? Well, it can literally mean like worshiping a statue, uh, something that's, that's uh, sacred or valuable, worshiping it. Like uh, an example of this in the Old Testament is the golden calf, right, at Sinai, Moses. But at a more basic level, idolatry is any time we value something more than God. We say that thing is the most important thing in my life and that thing is not God. That's idolatry. So idolatry could be a statue or a painting or something, but idolatry can also be your money. That's the most important thing to me. Therefore, my money is idolatry. It could be your career. It could be family. It could be fitness. It could be television. It could be food. Idolatry can be anything that we put above God. It's whatever you love most. That's idolatry if it's not God. And as we look at this passage, we actually see that the people asking Jesus this question are committing idolatry. Verses 23 and 24 say this. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. I want to show you a picture of a denarius, of a coin. So here it is. I hope you can, can see it. You can see that on one side, there's a picture of Caesar and his face. On the other, there's this picture of this woman who is seated on a throne. And you know, like our dollars say, in God we trust well, those inscriptions on it say, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Essentially, in Caesar we trust. In God we trust, in Caesar we trust. Now, remember Jesus' question? Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? When he uses the word image, it's this Greek word called icon. And it can also be translated idol. He's saying, whose idol is on this coin? Well Caesar, Caesar is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the most important God of all. And if we back up to the beginning of this chapter, do you know where Jesus is having this interaction? Do you know where this is taking place? It's taking place in the temple courtyard. And so for them to bring a denarius into the temple courtyard is a little bit blasphemous. Because they're bringing an idol into the temple. I mean, it's it's kind of bring it back to today. It's like if you're a Yankees fan and you wear all your your Yankees paraphernalia and you walk into the, the Red Sox stadium and you're just like, I am here. That's oh my goodness, that's so wrong. How about if you take a Starbucks Frappuccino into Dunkin' Donuts? Okay. Or saying, you know, Meryl Streep is a better actor than Mark Wahlberg. That is so idolatrous, so disrespectful. This is kind of what they were doing, right? But at a a completely different theological, political level. And so I want to ask us a challenging question. Are our politics more important than Jesus? If we spend, like, more time invested in politics than investing in our relationship with Jesus, like, we can't control politics. Like, I I cannot control what's going on in Washington. I can let my voice be heard. I I can vote. But at the end of the day, I don't have control over that. But you can invest in your relationship with God. So if you're investing more in one than the other, that could be idolatry. And Jesus says he deserves to be first first in our lives back in the old testament there was a man named Joshua Joshua was this great political leader he led the nation of Israel he was a military leader and he encountered God as he was leading an army into the promised land as he was leading this army against Jericho he encountered God's presence Joshua 5:13 through 14 uh, records this encounter it says now when Joshua was near Jericho he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand Joshua went up to him and asked are you for us or for our enemies neither he replied but as commander of the army of the lord i have now come then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him what message does my lord have for his servant Joshua is leading a military engagement that God himself has approved. And when he asks this angel or God, when he asks this person, are you on our side or their side, you would expect God to be like, I'm on your side. God says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on my own side. Joshua is humbled and he falls down in in reverence. Because he realizes we don't put the creator of the universe in our political party. We humble ourselves and we worship our God. At his second inaugural address, this is in 1865, President Abraham Lincoln, he spoke about the differences between the North and the South. The Civil War was almost over and somehow he needed to bring healing to a nation. And in his speech, he said how each side, the North and the South, both called out to God. Said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not, that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Abraham Lincoln condemns slavery. He says one is wrong, but his audience is the victors. He's he's talking to his victors, and he calls for humility in them. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And then at the end, he says the Almighty has his own purposes. That's saying God Almighty (laughs) is more important and more divine and, and more in control than we could ever imagine. God's in charge, and he has his own ways that don't fit in our political box. So when you think you know where Jesus stands politically, first, test your motives, and second, look for idolatry. And the third and final point is to give God everything. Verses 25 and 26 say this. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus says to give earthly leaders what they are do. So we're to give submission and respect to our government. And he says to give give to Caesar the thing that is that belongs to Caesar. Right? And so Caesar's face, his image is on this little coin. And so give Caesar this little coin. Well that seems to make sense but but then Jesus contrasts this with what we should give to God. He says, give God what is God's. So, let me ask you a question. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. The God of the universe, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, he owns everything. He owns every coin, every king, and every kingdom. Now, if putting his image on a coin makes that coin belong to Caesar what has God put his image on that then makes that thing belong to him you you and me humanity we've been made in God's image let me show you one of the very first verses in the Bible Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. That means God created men and women, people, humanity with just so much value, intrinsic worth. There's something about people that makes them special. It's because we've been made in God's image. To be made in God's image means to to reflect his creativity, his goodness, to be able to be in relationship with each other. like We call the God a trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're, they're each in relationship and loving each other. And to be made in his image means that we can be in relationship. And we can be in relationship with each other and with God. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. So, so Caesar can have his coin. Caesar can have his politics. God wants you. God wants me. He wants your heart. Maybe you've never heard that before. God wants your heart. God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to invite you to experience the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God. And you can only experience that by being in relationship with the God who created everything. God made us for joy, for happiness, for gladness, for for a life lived with him. But there's a problem there's a problem in Genesis chapter 3, just a couple chapters later, tells us about it because humankind, through Adam and Eve, maybe you've heard of them in the garden, Adam and Eve, they, they break the image. They break what it means to be made in the image of God. We still reflect God, but we become, become broken, and they did this by disobeying God. And you and I, we continue to be kind of made broken by disobeying God too. And if you look at the story of humanity, it's just one generation after the other passing down their brokenness to the next generation. So we're all supposed to be like these beautiful, reflective mirrors that kind of shine God's glory back on him, and yet we're like dull and cracked and broken. Until one day when a baby was born. (laughs) A baby who was born in the perfect image of God. A baby who was not tarnished. This baby is called the son of God. Hebrews 1.3 says this. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus was born without sin, without being tarnished. And as he walked this earth, he lived a perfectly obedient life. is like he went around and he kind of shined people up. He said, I forgive you of your sins. Let me, let me kind of shine you up so you reflect God a little bit more. I'm gonna heal you. I'm gonna cast out your demons. I'm gonna shine you up just a little bit more so you look more like your creator. And if you're here tonight and you are so aware of your brokenness and your dullness and your sin, Jesus can shine you up. Jesus can come and wipe away those sins and heal that broken glass. And begin to make you look just a little bit more like that good God who wants to be in relationship with you. That's the story of the Bible. Jesus did this by dying on the cross. That's why we have a cross on the wall. It's kind of morbid, but that's a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of wholeness, of restoration, of healing. It's through the cross, through Jesus' death and his resurrection that we can kind of like the the cracks on a mirror can kind of just like somehow miraculously come back together and we can reflect God's goodness once again. So if you don't know Jesus, I would invite you to to admit that you're dirty. (laughs) Admit you're broken and sinful. That's what Christianity is and then put your faith and your trust in him. And if you do know Jesus, if you are a Christian, then do that again today. (laughs) Remember once more your brokenness apart from Christ and believe again. See, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they're trying to get Jesus caught up in a a tiny little debate, a silly little debate about a a tiny little man on a small little coin. And they have missed the fact that the creator of the universe is standing right in front of them. The perfect image of God is in their presence, and they're they're caught up looking at this, this little image on a coin and debating about that. That doesn't have to be us. We don't have to miss the one who is perfect. Politics do matter, but Jesus, the Lord of the universe, matters so much more. When you think you know where Jesus stands politically, first, test your motives. Second, look for idolatry, and then give God your everything. I think if you do this, if we do this, if I do this, I think we'll be less interested in making sure Jesus is standing in our camp and we will be much more interested in just being with Jesus himself. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture and how it can teach us something about our context today. Help us understand your word more. I give you thanks. I give you praise for Elijah's baby dedication. Would you bless the the offering? Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.